episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. When it comes to investing education, one size doesn't fit all. TD Ameritrade helps you learn whether you're just starting out or an elite trader. Choose from articles, videos, webcasts, and more. Visit tdameritrade.com education. Member SIPC. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, everybody. In this week's episode, we're joined by Lee Purvis of AARP to talk about why prescription drugs are so dang high and what's being done about it and what you can do about it. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, a few episodes ago, we highlighted how this has been an extraordinarily good year to be an investor in U.S. stocks. From January to April, the S&P 500 returned over 18%. It was the best four-month start to the year since 1987. And then came May. Mm. So, as of this taping, May 30th, uh, the S&P 500 is down 5.5% this month. So, when stocks do well for the year, but then they start to slide in that fifth month, we often hear one of the most well-worn adages in Wall Street, which is... Sell in May and stay away? There you go. You, you picked that one out. Excellent. Uh, so, the basic, basic premise is that the stock market does not do quite as well from May to October. And it turns out there's actually some proof of this. So, here's some numbers from LPL Financial that looked at six-month returns from 1950 to 2018. So, you know, from January, the first six months, and then the next six months, and so on. So, on average, over a six-month period, the S&P 500 returns 4.3%. The best period, November to April, average return is 7%. Worst, May to October, 1.5%. But they also looked at the percentage of times that the market actually makes money over that period. On average, over a six-month period, the market makes money 69% of the time. Best, again, is November to April, makes money 76.8% of the time. Worst, April to September, but just slightly behind it, is May to October. So, there is some evidence that May to October is not quite so good. But, historically, you are still likely to make money, even if it's not as much. So, of course, I'm not going to tell you that you should cash out your stocks and wait around until Halloween to get back in the market. But, I will think it might be worth considering to do a little tweaking to your portfolio. So, maybe we should change it to rebalance in May and stay away. Why would you do that? Well, if you haven't rebalanced your portfolio, especially over the last decade, it has become much more risky. So, just as an example, let's say a decade ago, you were 75% stocks, 25% bonds. Over this decade, it has grown to where you are now 88% stocks, but you have also gotten 10 years closer to retirement if you are not yet retired, or you've just gotten older, when generally speaking, you should be getting more conservative. So, rebalancing really isn't necessarily about getting better returns. It's about being in control of the risk characteristics of your portfolio. And that is the uh, bottom line of a recent report from Vanguard, which came out in rebalancing, looked at a few things. First of all, looked at the returns of a non-rebalanced portfolio versus rebalanced portfolio. And there's no question, especially when you're rebalancing between stocks and bonds and cash, rebalancing lowers your returns. There's, on average, you're going to earn higher returns if you stay all invested and just let stocks overrun your portfolio. But you widen the result possible results. So, if you never rebalance, you could have extraordinary returns, but there's also a chance that you will have not so good returns. Whereas, if you rebalance your portfolio on a regular basis, you narrow the range of your returns. You won't have exceptional returns, but you won't have horrible returns. 
So the next question is, how often should you rebalance? Well, Vanguard's report looked at that too. There are really two ways to do it, either by time, like annually, quarterly, monthly, or by threshold, meaning once your allocation has gotten out of whack by a certain amount, you bring it back in. So let's say, for example, you decide you should have 75% in stocks, you would rebalance once it grows to 85% or down to 65%. What's best? Interestingly, it almost doesn't matter. The returns are almost identical, as well as the risk profile, whether you look at volatility or something known as the Sharpe Ratio. What's most important is that you're doing some sort of rebalancing once in a while. I think every few years is probably good enough. I'm going to close here with a few tips about actually how you should do the rebalancing, sort of the nuts and bolts of it. First of all, if whatever possible, do it within an IRA or a 401k or a tax advantage account, so you don't have to worry about paying capital gains taxes on that. You can rebalance with cash flow. So if you are still saving for retirement, you can devote your contributions to your 401ks and IRAs to the stuff that's underweighted. If you're retired, you can rebalance by taking money out of the investments that have done particularly well. If you're charitably inclined, you can rebalance by donating appreciated stock. That by when you donate appreciated stock to a qualified charity, you avoid paying the capital gains and you might get a tax deduction. Or if you're 70 and a half, you can rebalance by making what's known as a qualified charitable distribution from your traditional IRA. You don't have to pay taxes on the distribution that way. Also, it counts as your required minimum distribution. If either of those things sound good to you, make sure you learn more and maybe talk to your tax pro because there are some rules you have to follow. You can also gradually rebalance your portfolio by not automatically reinvesting the dividends into the stocks that paid them. And it could be bonds too, as well, or any of your mutual funds. And instead, either let that accumulate in cash and then put it towards underweight investments. Or if you're within like a decade of retirement, actually it makes sense to just let that accumulate in cash and bonds because as you get closer to retirement, that'll naturally make your portfolio more conservative. And finally, uh, consider the quality as well as the quantity of all your investments. When you rebalance, it's a good opportunity to just look at everything you own. Do that thought exercise. If you look at an investment and say, if I didn't own this, would I rebuy it today? If you actively manage mutual funds, we've all heard that most of them are not beating index funds. So this is a good opportunity maybe to get rid of some of your underperforming funds. Is management still doing the job? You want to do all those things. It's a good time to reevaluate portfolio. And for any investments that you no longer believe in, you can rebalance just by getting rid of them. So the bottom line on the on this is basically rebalancing is a risk management strategy, not a return-enhancing strategy. If you are very aggressive, if you're more than a decade from your financial goal, it may not be actually all that important. But if you are conservative or moderate, or if you're getting within a decade of your financial goal, buying a house, going to college, going to retirement, managing your risk is much more important, and rebalancing is one way to do that. And that, Allison, is what's up. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. So, you've done a ton of research on a trade, but you can't decide if you want to go through with it. TD Ameritrade's Trade Desk might be the secret to figuring it all out. Just go to tdameritrade.com slash trade desk to see how they can help gut check your trades. Member SIPC. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, one in four Americans report trouble paying for their prescription drugs, and that they or a family member have not filled a prescription, have cut their pills in half, or skipped doses altogether due to costs. Well, 
That sounds like a big problem. And you know what? A lot of Americans realize that. A recent Harvard political poll in January found that 80% of Americans think that lower prescription drug prices should be the top bro, the top priority of Congress. Wow. I know, that's surprising, that's right? Funny, but I can understand why. Well, there, you, yeah, I can too with this sort of research. So joining us today in studio is Lee Purvis. She's the Director of Health Service Research at AARP's Public Policy Institute. Lee, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, but before we get into the research and why we brought you here, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be at AARP and what you do for them? So I am actually a tried and true local, which not many people can say no. here in D.C. Um, I grew up in Springfield, Virginia, and so politics were kind of in the water. And I happened to find myself kind of interested in policy, kind of interested in health policy. Long story short, I started working on prescription drug stuff, and here I am. How Proud graduate of the University oh. of Mary Washington. I am. Which is a lovely little school in Fredericksburg. It is. And I also oh. went to George Mason, which is in Fairfax. Like I yeah. said, tried and true local. Didn't get far. But, you know, given what I do, this is probably the only place I can really do it. That's so. true. Oh. So I guess you were just kind of a glutton for punishment if you wanted to get into healthcare <laughs> policy. <laughs> Ah, maybe all policy is hard and difficult. I think, uh, yeah, I think it's safe to say that. But lately, healthcare policy has been particularly punishing. Yes, yes, <laughs> it has been somewhat controversial, hasn't over the last several yeah. years. So I think there's obviously a lot of reasons why we are dealing with this rising cost in prescription drugs. It's very complicated. There are a lot of opportunities to get outraged, but I think what really gets Americans upset the most is knowing that people in other countries pay so much less. Like apparently. Um, Apparently, in the U.S., for the world's top 20 selling medicines are, on average, three times higher than in Britain. Like, oh man, people in the U.K. are paying so much less for drugs! And the exact same drugs. That's the other thing that people really need to understand, is it is literally the exact same product, but they're paying substantially less for it. All right, so let's try to unpack this, because this is obviously not going to be very easy. But let's talk about how this system works in America. Okay, let's say I'm a drug company. I'm a drug company. I got my drug approved. It's a great drug. FDA, I guess, is like, okay, yeah, cool. Now you get to sell it. Um, And then I just start selling it? Is it that easy? It looks like it's that easy. It, 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 you, you put it on the market, and then the next question is who's going to cover it and how they're going to cover it. And our healthcare system, as you probably know, is remarkably complicated. So there are some programs like Medicaid that pretty much have to cover it. And then there is private coverage where they actually kind of make decisions about which drugs they cover. Um, so you may see some people paying more than others. You may see people with different cost sharing. Um, but the reality is in the U.S. system, generally, once you get a drug on the market, it is going to be covered. Okay, so then what happens in other countries? I'm a drug company, my drug works, I'm ready to sell it. Hey, Denmark, here's my drug. <laughs> so Actually, let's not say, let me not name drug countries specifically. <laughs> let's just unnamed country. Unnamed country is not drug. here. Yeah. Yes. Um, there are a few more steps before you actually have the drug on the market. So some countries will take a look at the new product and compare it to existing products and see whether it's better. Um, some may look at the efficacy of the drug and say, you know what, this price just does not work for what this drug actually offers. So there's some decisions made at that very high level before they decide whether and how to cover the drug. And I'm sure you've seen it in the news lately. There are some countries that just said, you know what, we're not going to cover it. And they get some very public fights with the drug company about what's going to happen next. You know, Is the drug company going to drop their price? Are people in that country just not going to have that drug? Um, and, and again, it's a very public uh, discussion, let's say, that takes place. Yeah, because drug companies then will come back and say, um, well, if you're not going to pay these prices for our drugs, then you're going to stifle our ability to innovate, because we're going to take all this profit. 
and we're going to put it back into our business and we're going to make better innovations to make your life better. And if you're not going to buy our drug at our prices, you're stifling innovation, right? Is that like the main argument that drug companies make? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. It it is an argument that if you don't give us what we want, then you will not have drugs to cure the things that you want to cure. Um, There are a lot of questions about the validity of that argument. Um, For example, if you look at all the patents that have been given out over the past several years, 75% of them are for things that already existed in the drug space. So they're for recycling, repurposing existing drugs. I'm not sure we really qualify that as innovation under a normal definition. So sometimes it's good to kind of push them as to what they actually mean by innovation, because if we're just getting kind of recycled products, we're not getting a whole lot for that, and we're being asked to pay a lot for them. Yeah, and here in the U.S., um, I read an article that was basically saying, in the U.S., we spend so much more on these drugs than other countries that we are essentially as a country, subsidizing the whole industry worldwide. How, how true is that? We are definitely spending a lot more on the same products. Um, we have a lot more people using them, too, but the reality is we're paying much higher prices. What's fascinating is that drug companies have admitted that they are still making a profit in those other countries, which means our prices could come down and they would still be making a profit here. So they really are, at least the term that's often used is profiteering here, where they're just making so much money, and the question is, really, is it justified? Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? Because we here at The Motley Fool are investors. So when we buy a stock, we are partial owners of that company, and we want them to be profitable. We want them to make money, uh, and we appreciate innovation and all that. On the other hand, we also believe that generally we'd like our portfolio to reflect our values, and we think that our company should be doing good for the world. And there is no question that the pharmaceutical industry is among the most profitable in the world. They absolutely are. Um, There is a lot of money swirling around in that particular part of the market. And I think the question really rises when you're talking about people's health. Um, You know, there's profits coming at the expense of people's health. And that is really where organizations like AARP get engaged in the sense that we're seeing so much money flowing to the companies. At the same time, we're hearing from our members that they can't access the drugs that they need. And, And that obviously is a huge problem. Yeah, it's almost like other countries treat drugs as a utility. As a in medicine as a utility as opposed to a profit center or companies that should be making a lot of profit. Yeah, and it, you know the, the drug companies are behaving completely rationally in the sense of the incentives that we put in for them. They will and can make a whole lot of money by pricing their products incredibly high. But again, the question is, should they be? Are these things that people have a right to access to maintain their health? And and that's the questions that are really being being raised now. We're one of the few podcasts that would be like, but what about the shareholders? Because um, I was reading a, an article. It was about uh, the, let's see, a pharma executive for Nostrum Laboratories. He defended his decision to raise the price of an antibiotic um, to more than two thousand dollars. It was a four hundred four percent increase, arguing that there was a moral requirement to sell the product at the highest price. Um, and it's been a drug that's been around since like the 50s to treat bladder infections. But anyway, he doubled down on this unpopular opinion by siding with Martin Shkreli, the guy who uh, yeah. famously raised the, the price bro. of an AIDS and cancer drug from $13 to 750 per tablet because, and this is again this guy from Nostrum Laboratory saying, he had to reward his shareholders. <laughs> I'm so torn by that as an investor, and that's um, and that's uh, that's also the case that you see in other places. I was reading lots of articles, and I kept stumbling upon this guy that I used to work with, um, Craig Garthwaite. He's in a lot of these articles. I assume you're familiar with him, and probably run into him all the time. He's um, usually on the side of business, but his whole argument was that VC, VC, um, you know, a venture capitalist is going to want to invest in 
something that's going to be more profitable. So if a pharmaceutical company isn't going to be profitable, then they're not going to get the money to invest. And then again, it's back to that. Then we aren't going to have innovations, and then everyone dies. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is it's true, and sadly, it's true. But、um, anyway, it's I I don't know what the balance is supposed to be between profit and doing good in the world. So let's maybe. Move on to talking about what are some of the policy solutions that are getting thrown around out there. So there are a ton of ideas floating around. Some of the more popular ones are things like secretarial negotiation, which is allowing Medicare to negotiate. Right now, it doesn't negotiate prescription drug prices, which seems a little interesting given that there are you know forty plus million people in Medicare Part D. There are fifty some million in Medicare broadly.、Um, it's a lot of people, and the fact that Medicare doesn't negotiate on behalf of its beneficiaries seems a little strange. Um, we're also hearing a lot of talk about importation, which going back to talking about how other countries pay so much less.、Um, there's talk of either importing the drugs and paying the lower prices from those other countries, or in some ways, kind of importing the price and not the product, and just saying we're going to reference price、um, and base our prices on the prices of other countries.、Um, we're also hearing some things that we really didn't talk about even you know a few years ago. Things like jumping into the patent system and reforming how patents are handed out, or changing、um, the type of exclusivity that drug companies get when they. Come on the market, really just kind of playing with how much time they get a monopoly period.、Um, there are some concerns that those monopoly periods are being abused, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so, trying to find a way to kind of limit the amount of time that brand name drug companies can stay on the market and charge monopoly prices. And what、um, what are you, what's your opinion? Like, what do you think is The best possible solution, right? <laughs> It's so easy. It's so easy.、Uh, the things that we are particularly focused on are ones that would really maximize competition in the market. So, making sure that generics enter the market as quickly as possible, because that really is when you start seeing some price reductions for the generics that are competing on price. We're also very interested in Medicare negotiation. We obviously represent that demographic, and we want to make sure that Medicare beneficiaries have access to the drugs that they need, and also make sure that the Medicare program spending doesn't get completely out of control. Which unfortunately is what we're seeing right now.、Um, we're also interested under Medicare in, in an out-of-pocket cap. Right now, Medicare Part D, which are the private plans that cover drugs that you pick up at the pharmacy, there is a cap, but it's not a hard cap. So you actually continue paying even after you enter catastrophic. And we have some people who are paying. Ten thousand dollars a year for their prescription drugs, and we always like to point out Medicare beneficiary median income is just over twenty six thousand dollars per year. So you're talking about spending that nobody can really keep up with, much less someone with a relatively limited income.、Um, so a, a lot of ideas on the table, and we are certainly interested in you know whoever's bringing something forward to take a look at it. Yeah. What about a situation where a company you know has the patent on the drug? They come out; they're the only folks providing this, so there really is no competition. And even if Medicare or anyone else could negotiate, they'd say, "Fine. Who else are you going to turn to?"、Uh, and some of those drugs, in, in one article, is really—I mean, tens of thousands of dollars a year, up to a million dollars a year, depending on the drug. Yes, and that is where it gets complicated because you don't want to disincentivize companies from coming up. With those types of cures, we want those innovative cures. So there is a very fine balance between maintaining the innovation and making sure those products are affordable.、Um, something a lot of people are interested in is just looking at the prices generally. So when you have that single source drug come on the market, have some idea as to whether or not the price is justified. Because right now it seems like a lot of these, well, a lot, all of these companies come on the market、um, with prices that seem to kind of balance between maximizing profit. And making everyone very upset, <laughs>、um, and unfortunately, that's what what has happened. And so,、um, you know, even you were just talking about the drugs that are you know two point one million dollars is a new high high water mark.、Um, 
you know, back in the 90s, drugs that cost $10,000 were unthinkable. And now we're, again, over a million dollars. So we really have kind of seen some movement in what we consider outrageous. And we've never really stopped to think about whether or not those prices were justified in the first place. So there's a lot of interest in trying to kind of get behind the curtain and say, okay, how much did you spend developing this drug? How much does it actually cost to bring this thing to the market? Because right now we don't know. And then start having a conversation of how much value it brings to the patients who are using it, and then think about the price, as opposed to just building on what may be a very broken pricing model that we have right now. We're talking about things like Medicare and the government and the role of pricing. What's the government's role in innovation? I don't know the answer to this, but how many drugs are developed by the government, whether at NIH or at universities with government grants? That is a great question. And a lot of people don't know this. Um, All of the drugs, the innovative drugs that have been coming on the market lately, have their origins in taxpayer-funded research. So they play a very outsized role in kind of developing those compounds that are ultimately developed into drugs. Drug companies will take them from that point forward and go through the clinical trial process and the FDA approval process. But that basic science is really being funded by taxpayers, which means or makes uh, paying these high prices that much more, let's say, unjustified, I think, for the people, because they've already paid once, and now they're paying these remarkably high prices later. Mm. All right, so I'm a fairly young, healthy person, thankfully, knock on um, desk, which I... For Micah, maybe? For Micah, I don't know what this is. but So, prescription drug costs aren't really on my mind, but it's probably in my best interest to anticipate that this is going to be a pretty big cost center in my retirement, potentially. So, um, what should people, what can people my age do, if anything, to prepare or anticipate how this is going to impact me in the future? Well, I think the first thing I want to make kind of clear, because this is something we think is really important to convey to people, is that even if you are young and healthy, you are already paying for prescription drugs. Um, You're either paying for it at the pharmacy counter if you are taking a drug, or you're paying for it through your health insurance premiums, your cost sharing, what your deductible looks like. All of that is driven by what the plan is paying for prescription drugs. And then, of course, you presumably pay taxes. So your taxes are going towards prescription drugs as well. So the thing we really like to drive home is that prescription drug prices and price trends are already affecting you no matter what. So this is an issue that should matter to you regardless of whether you're taking a drug. Um, In terms of repairing, Again, you're kind of looking at the trends, and if they just continue unchanged, you will be talking about drugs that, on average, are tens of thousands of dollars. And a lot of times, people take drugs on a chronic basis. So it's not a one-time cost. You're seeing people that are facing these costs every single year for the rest of their lives. Um, So honestly, again, looking at the trends, I don't think you can prepare enough financially for the drug prices that we're seeing right now. Um, you know, Nobody wants to have to make the trade-offs that we're starting to see already, where people are just saying, you know what, I'm going to go without. And we're seeing that with cancer patients. Like There are people not treating cancer because of the cost. Mm. Um, that, again, as the average price goes up, is going to become more and more common. And yes, you cannot have enough money in the <laughs> bank, frankly, because um, when, one story that really struck me was that a public official was out and said, quote, we're toast if someone manages to cure Alzheimer's. Because if it costs anywhere from 100000 to a $1 million, and you've got hundreds of millions of people that could potentially be affected by that condition, that alone could dwarf the amount of money we spend on all prescription drugs right now. Um, so it, it is kind of scary, frankly, when you think about the fact that you will, at some point in your life, no longer be earning from a job, and you have to find a way to cover the costs associated with these drugs in perpetuity. And what about people who are uh, getting closer to retirement and have to start thinking about things like Medicare? I think the most important thing that any Medicare beneficiary can do is 
look at their Medicare Part D plan every single year because they change considerably from year to year in terms of what drugs are covered, how they're covered, whether there's going to be a prior authorization, um, whether you're going to have some other form of utilization management. What your cost sharing is going to be? Will it be a flat copay? Will it be coinsurance where you pay for a percentage of the drug cost? It really matters. So, the one thing I think that people can really do to prepare themselves is get a better idea of what the Medicare Part D plan market looks like and make sure that whatever drugs you are taking will be covered and be and covered in a way that makes sense to you once you end in the plan. I was surprised here at the Motley Fool. We're a pretty savvy bunch of people who I would think, I would say, are frugal, more on the frugal side than, than not. Um, and our, prescri- our our generic drug usage was actually really, really poor. Isn't that crazy? Well, I think part of that is people don't think about when they go, they get their prescription from their doctor, nurse practitioner, and they don't really question it. And they don't say, oh, is there a generic version of this? They're just like, oh, this must be the right one for That's me. It, yeah. And then what you do is you go to the closest pharmacy not appreciating the fact that actually prices do vary. And that's one of the things anyone can do is check the prices in your area. Where are you going to get the best deal? Absolutely. The number one thing that you should be doing with your healthcare provider is having an open conversation about all of the drugs that you are on. Um, there's a pretty good chance that either there's a generic or something that may be less expensive. You you just need to have those conversations. You can have it at the doctor's office, or you can have it with your pharmacist as well. But that is incredibly important, and probably the easiest way to get some savings is to find out what else might be available to treat your condition. And then, like you said, there can be some great variation in terms of what pharmacies are charging for a given drug. Um, so if you're in a in, in a position where you are paying full price for the drug, it can definitely make sense to go and look around and see where you can get it for the lowest price. Um, that said, it, if you have co- cost sharing, you also may be running into something else we've been seeing a lot lately, which is your uh, payer may have a preferred pharmacy where your cost sharing is lower than it would be if you went to a non-preferred pharmacy. So, lots of different things to keep an eye on in terms of reducing your out-of-pocket costs. So, a couple of the websites that I found in my research that will help you determine the prices in your area where to get a good deal are GoodRx, WeRx, Blink Health, and Rx Saver. Um, and I, I've not personally used any of these, but I learned about GoodRx from Seth Jason, our colleague who's mm. been on the show, and he uses it for his dog because his dog takes, and that's something that's become increasingly, I don't know if the word's popular, but people are using more and more pharmaceuticals for the dog, so you can get discounts at all of these places. It basically says. How much this drug will cost at various places in your zip code, but also might offer up a coupon. In some cases, paying cash with the coupon is going to be a better deal than using your insurance. Absolutely, yes. It it pays to shop around. You have to be savvy about this. Uh, There are a lot of different moving parts in this particular part of the world um, between cost sharing and the price and coupons. And is there a generic available? Is there a therapeutic equivalent available? There are a lot of different things to keep an eye on, which is why it's important to talk to your healthcare provider. Um, to make sure that you are hopefully getting the lowest cost option available. Yeah, my dad recently was complaining to his doctor about how much his prescription was costing. And so what they did is they applied directly to the manufacturer. Yes. They did the first paperwork, then they sent my dad some paperwork. He had to fill in some more paperwork, and he got a huge discount. 
Yes, the manufacturers do have programs that help patients who can meet their eligibility criteria. Uh, word to the wise on that one, though, is there, there's a lot of variation in terms of what the eligibility criteria are, and it can be a complicated process. Um, but we've found some manufacturers for which the eligibility criteria are different from drug to drug. So um, it, it can be a complicated, difficult process to get through. But um, if it's the difference between you being able to take the drugs you need and not, it is definitely a good option. A couple of other common tips that people will hear is paying for 90 days instead of 30 days, you'll often get a discount. Or buying something like 20 milligrams if you only need to take 10, and then you cut them in half with the scoring. That always sounded a little dicey to me, but so I'm curious your take on the whole cutting your pills in half. Yeah, that's something that's a little outdated in terms of the advice. I think people are kind of moving away from that because there is so much potential for human error and you really don't want to take chances with that. Um, so our recommendations typically fall along the lines of talking to your healthcare provider, check out some programs that are available for people who have lower incomes, um, kind of things to, to push you towards someone who can help you kind of navigate the system a little bit better. So some of what you're suggesting is basically the policy issues, right? So where do people go to find out how to be involved with that and to encourage their congresspersons to take some action on that? So there are a lot of groups that are heavily engaged on this issue right now, a lot of consumer-focused groups. Um, you, of course, can also go to AARP. We're actually engaged in a campaign we just launched in March called Stop Rx Greed, and have a whole part of our website that's completely devoted to this issue and trying to push forth uh, policy options that we support, and that's at aarp.org slash rx. Um, but again, this is kind of an issue that's resonated with a lot of different groups. Another is Patients for Affordable Drugs. They've been heavily engaged on this as well. Um, and we're also involved in the Campaign for Sustainable Drug Pricing, which also is heavily engaged. So there's a lot of different groups out there. Um, I think, honestly, you could just open the paper and you could get a good idea of who's involved. But it's definitely an issue that's resonating with a lot of consumers these days. Um, so I'm reading the Kaiser Family Foundation also did a survey asking um, what people felt they were most uh, in favor of to keep prescription costs down. And one of them is ending the tax break given to drug companies for their advertising spend? Yes. Now I'm angry all over again. <laughs> this is like 12B1 fees, but for prescription drugs. What is that about? And we are one of two countries that even allow that type of advertising to take place. But yes, that is definitely an option that has been on the table. You know, Why should drug companies get a tax break for advertising to consumers and potentially pushing them to take drugs that they don't need? So yes, that is... <laughs> oh, man! That makes me almost more mad than how much England is paying for drugs. <laughs> All right. Well, do you have any parting advice for our listeners as we wind down here? No, I think just the most important thing is when you are prescribed an expensive drug, you do have options. You just need to have an open conversation with your healthcare provider. And if you really want to do something about it, you know, come look at AARP's website, join our campaign. We are welcoming all takers and are very <laughs> interested in making sure that this is an issue that is addressed soon. All right. And that website again is aarp.org slash rx. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, let's have a little fun. Uh, so, bro, this was your idea, so I'll give credit or blame where credit and blame is due. Only I'm, if it's good. I'm gonna, that was my idea. I'm going to tell you a word or a name, I guess, and you have to figure out whether it is the name of a drug or the name of a Doctor Who character. <laughs> and what's fun about this segment is that regardless of whether it's a Doctor Who character or a drug, you're going to be confused and probably aggravated. I know so, nothing about Doctor Who characters. Rick, so. how about you? Or drugs. Yep. Here we go. <laughs> okay. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. First one is Questa. That sounds like a drug to me. Yeah, I go with the drug on that. 
Actually, Cuesta was a human who lived in a colony secretly ruled by Macra. He was an old friend of Medoc and tried to convince Medoc to join in the party that was being held for the second doctor and his companions from the episode The Macra Terror. <laughs> right. If, if anyone has a Macra Terror, I hope there's a drug for that. Ready? <laughs> Benicar Olmatek. That's got to be a drug. I'm going to say character because that's a bad name for a drug in terms of marketing. Benicar, Olmatec. Yeah. Rick was right. It's a drug to treat high blood pressure. It's from uh, the maker Daiichi Sankyo, I guess. Sure. Uh, It costs about $5 a pill in the U.S. compared to 82 cents in the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. All right, next one. Dexion. It sounds like a drug to me, just because it sounds like Nexium and all these other things that I... I'll go Doctor Who character just to be different. Dexion was the leader of the Thals. Oh, man. He said that John Latimer was a good man, not a criminal. And so I was like, who's John Latimer? And the fandom entry begins, John Latimer was a criminal. From the episode, (laughs) The Curse of the Daleks. Daleks? Daleks. I don't know. I never know how to say it. Daleks. Daleks. Thank you. All right, ready? (laughs) Synthroid. Character. Uh, Drug. It's a treatment for hyperthyroidism and thyroid cancer. It costs $131 in the U.S. for 100 tablets, compared to just $2 in Vietnam. Oh, man. (laughs) All right, ready? Sinrise. Character. That sounds like something you have to take medication for, but uh, I'll say it's a drug. It is a treatment for adolescents and adults with hereditary angioedema. The list price, and this is, by the way, it's the U.S.'s third most expensive drug. The list price is 44000 for 20 vials. Oh. Um, but in the U.K., uh, you can get 20 vials for 34000 So, oh. yeah. All right. Next one. Brodadac. It's my cousin. No, I don't know who that is. I'm character. I'm going with character on that one. Sure, I'll join you. All right. Lieutenant Brodadak was a Gaztak mercenary under General Gruger. Brodadak helped him in bringing a human to Meglos and in stealing the dodecahedron. He was killed along with other Gaztaks when Zoloft Thura exploded. I don't know what I'm saying. I have literally no idea what I'm saying. All right. Next one. Severin. Uh, so sever medically doesn't sound good, so I'm going with character. I'll go with a drug. Severin was a muto living in the wastelands. <laughs> he saved Sarah Jane Smith from Geral, another muto, before being captured along with her by a Thal patrol. After being rescued from the Thal dome, he aided the fourth doctor's companions and Betten in resistance against the Dal- Daleks. Thank you. H.P. <laughs> Akthar. Character? Character. This is harder than you thought it was going to be, isn't well, my, it? So just to be clear, my idea was science fiction characters, not Doctor Who. I zeroed in on Doctor yeah, Who. Yeah, you did. I knew this would be hard. We're going for characters here. All right. Well, H.P. Akthar is used to treat the acute acerbations of multiple sclerosis and is marketed by M- Malincrot, not a Doctor Who character, <laughs> but it could be, for th- almost $40,000 for two vials. It's the sixth most expensive drug in the U.S., um, you can't get it in other countries. Uh, so I guess I don't need to say. Oh, here we go. There's more. So Malin 
Drott has been involved in pricing and legal disputes over the drug. In 2017, a class action lawsuit filed by Medicare Advantage Organizations, which I have to assume is a not U.S. Uh, entity because it spells organizations with two S's, um, accusing the company of increasing the price of HP Acthar gel by 85,000% since 2001 from $40 a vial. All right, next one Zaltrap. I'm going with drug on that one. Yeah, it starts with a Z. It's got to be a drug. Yeah. You're right. It is a drug. According to Vox, other countries, and we talked about this earlier, other countries' regulatory agencies usually reject drugs when they don't provide enough benefit to justify the price that drug makers want to charge. In the US, those drugs just come onto market, which means we get expensive drugs that offer little benefit, but might be especially good at marketing. So this happened in 2012 with a drug called Zaltrap, which treats colorectal cancer. The drug cost about 11,000 per month, twice as much as its competitors, while in the eyes of doctors offering no additional benefit. Oh boy. So there you go. Just one aggravating fun segment for everyone. <laughs> I actually did a little research on the naming of drugs, which is where I, I was as I was doing this, I came up with that idea. Like every drug I read about could be the villain in a science fiction movie. Yeah. Uh, but you have to submit it to the FDA in the US because it can't be too close to the name of another drug and something like twenty to thirty percent of names get rejected. Mm. Because one point five million people in this country either get sick or die. Because either they were accidentally prescribed the wrong drug because the doctor ch- sure. chose a drug with a similar name on the drop-down menu, or at the pharmacy they accidentally Horrible gave handwriting, yeah, yeah, all, all kinds of, or, or they didn't quite take it correctly. So it's one of the leading causes of preventable health issues in this country. Wow, isn't that fascinating? Yeah. All right. Well, that's the show. It's edited prescriptively by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool dot com. <sighs> I don't know. I'm kind of tired of talking. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.